If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's podcast guest is the author Clement Knox, who joined me to discuss his book, Strange Antics, A History of Seduction. We discuss the changing understandings of seduction since the Enlightenment, and why it's often a very thorny issue to engage with. The starting idea for your book is seduction, which I think is something that falls into quite a difficult territory if we're considering issues of consent, agency, power dynamics. How do you define seduction? Yeah, that's a good question, because I, um, I kind of dance around the, the issue throughout the book, and I think... Um, it's important to state up front that actually it's a very hard word to define, which is the cause, uh, the root of a lot of our, our, our problems with it. Um, I think a really helpful place to start is where the law always defines seduction. And there, for about three centuries, there's been a legal understanding of what seduction constituted, and it was always held up in contrast to rape. So rape was obviously uh, forceful without consent. Seduction assumed that consent had been granted, uh, but that, that consent had somehow been degraded by the methods by which it had been obtained. So this is where we get all this fancy language about, you know, wiles, arts, deceits, fraud, uh, and so forth, which was written into the laws to understand why, although consent had been given, it, it shouldn't have been trusted um, by the by the um, 
by the person who gave it, nor by the courts or by society. Um, but uh, I think that, that legal definition is very useful. Another way I like to think about it is if you ignore sex and just think about seduction in other contexts, you know, politics or the marketplace, um, often we assume that when people suggest that someone's been seduced into voting for someone or seduced into buying a product or something, that that is kind of a, somehow an impulsive decision, that someone has been calculating, uh, has somehow calculated uh, how to make the pitch to prey on people's sort of, um, you know, passions or instincts or, or, or to lead them to make a decision that if they were in their 100% control of their, their faculties, they wouldn't do. And that's how I kind of try to bring in that whole um, argument which propels the book, which is that seduction is really about are we creatures of reason or creatures of passion and how that conflict plays out over time. You mentioned there that seduction can be seen in other contexts than sex, but say if we do take it in that context, yeah. it isn't just about sex, and that is one of the big questions that your book posits. Um, mm. When is seduction about more than sex? What other factors are at play in these relationships that you're examining? Right. So, I mean, like the, the elephant in the room is always going to be power, which is... Um, you know, I think we like to think that thinking about sex in terms of power is quite a modern idea. And I think what I try and talk about in the book is that actually, this, well, yeah, it is technically a modern idea, but if you date modern times to say uh, the Enlightenment, it's been around for a few hundred years at least. Um, and I think the history of seduction is a history of two narratives, one which foregrounds power and says that sexuality and power are inseparable, and the other which foregrounds agency and says that actually the rational desires pursued by men and women across time is, is not so much about people um, submitting to the authority of others, but actually about using sexuality to empower themselves. And that is something you see from, you know, Henry Fielding and his kind of burlesques all the way through to Sex in the City, right, which is about, or the sexual revolution, which is about how sexuality can be an empowering thing. But you're right, when we're talking about power uh, and the seduction narrative as classically understood, you know, from Samuel Richardson onwards, we are talking about um, how uh, women are often victims of, of um, exploitative arrangements. Uh, in the 19th century, race came into play. Um, I would argue that throughout, class has been a huge issue and continues to be a huge issue. You trace seduction narratives throughout history, um, these stories that kind of um, catch the popular imagination, and there are two sides to those. Um, can you give us some examples of those two contradictory narratives you give. So you give one in which um, the seducer is a villain and one in which the seducer is a hero. So, I mean, to use, to use two very modern examples just because people are more familiar with them, I think like um, a book or film like Fifty Shades of Grey is classic villainous. So you have this kind of strange, mysterious man who is preying upon this innocent virginal woman, and that is the the crux of the narrative. It's like it's like a will will he won't he, and that's what drives forward the interest. Um, I think uh, I don't talk about uh, your listeners. Will be glad to hear I don't talk about that book in the in my book. But if you look at something like Dracula, that is essentially the same narrative. If you look at um, Samuel Richardson's uh, Pamela or Clarissa. Again, very, very similar narrative. Uh, the, the other one, you know, the seducer as a hero, um, I think the, the I, again, I mentioned Sex and the City, that, that has elements of that. I think James Bond is the classic one. We always forget that James Bond was a product of the sexual revolution and that the kind of, uh, the sexual values he embodied were very much those of swinging London and um, 
the, the sexual liberation era. And I think again, if you look at James Bond, it's very much that no one, no one's getting hurt in his his, his sexual games. At least um, this is about empowered men and empowered women meeting on terms of parity. Again, if you go back to the Enlightenment, this is the kind of um, stories that surrounded people like Casanova, uh, people like Voltaire, uh, and as I mentioned before, Henry Fielding. So, so that's where I see the, the tradition of those two um, contrasting narratives. Um, so in all the examples that we've just discussed there, or you've just brought up, we have um, a male seducer and a female, female, what would you say, um, female object of seduction? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say that, uh, and this is something worth worth making very clear, is I think um, in the in the, the villainous seduction narrative, when there's a, a male uh, seducer and a, and a female victim, and, you know, again, in that mode, even using the word seduction is quite charged because, as we've learned recently, it may be more helpful to see these things in terms of exploitation or abuse or grooming. And obviously those are words that in the 18th century they didn't have much time for. Well, they didn't really exist. And... Uh, if you read Casanova now, you have a very different set of reactions than, say, his audience would at the time because uh, mores have evolved, um, and in a good way. Um, however, things like, uh, we're talking about the seducer as a hero, as a, as a rational agent, I think actually that can be both men and women, and that's not just a modern thing. I, I do talk about uh, uh, some of the modern sort of sexual heroines like... Um, Bridget Bardot or the, the the flappers in the F. Scott Fitzgerald novels, but you know this this, this was very much the case in the 18th century. Uh, it's just that nowadays we have a harder time accepting uh, um, the reality maybe of, of female empowerment in the 18th century, just because our mind it seems okay. They don't have the vote. There are no legal protections. They are basically confined to domestic roles in the economy. How can we consider people in those situations to be sexually empowered? Nonetheless. They, they, they were, there were those narratives at the time. So it's not necessarily that the unequal power dynamic in these relationships is always gendered in terms of male with power, fem- women without power. Exactly. Um, and, and, and I would say that for the when, when we're talking about seduction as a rational enterprise, power um, is is in the eye of the beholder, and often people don't don't understand um, their their relationship. By reference to power, the understand that by reference to their own desires and their own their own wills. Whereas in the in and that's why it makes sense to think of um, men and women as both being sort of agents of that. Whereas I think just as a thought exercise, if you tried to to rever- like reverse the roles for a classic um, seduction narrative and had some poor, vulnerable, fully grown man being kind of led down the the garden path by some very powerful, mysterious woman. That doesn't really exist in our culture, and there's a, a lot of reasons why it, why it doesn't. And when those um, have existed, it's normally in the context of very misogynistic narratives. So witchcraft is one really obvious one. Another one is, is the gold digger, which was kind of invented in the 20s in response to female emancipation. Um, I think that point you made about the, the strangeness to, to us in our culture of this idea of a, a vulnerable um, man being prey to a woman. Often women in these narratives are cast as naive and unworldly and weak. Yeah, very much so. And that's and that is the the double-edged nature of the of these narratives. Because um one of the things I I try and show in the book is how these narratives um are often cast in fictional terms um but have feed back into the real world 
through laws, through institutions, through moral campaigns, through journalism. Um, and so often there's a campaigning element to them. So in the 18th century, the, the seduction narratives were, were hitched to um, campaigns to try and create charitable institutions to protect women, to protect the uh, uh, orphans, um, to generally try and change moral behavior amongst men. Um, we can see power, similar campaigns in the 19th century surrounding uh, the creation of seduction laws in the US. Again, these were campaigned for through um, through often volumes of stories of seduced women, which were used as a basis of propaganda exercise. And so we can see how, on the one hand, these, these narratives are used to advance what we would consider progressive causes. But in the, in the process, they often reinforce a very patronizing vision of, of womanhood and a female agency. Um, to dig in a little bit deeper on the idea of legislation, um, mm. first of all, I think a lot of listeners would think, what do you mean laws against seduction? Because it's not really something that we're that familiar with. Before we kind of dig into it, could you just explain what some of those laws involved and the kind of things that were written on statute books or whatever? Right. So um, these were laws that originally were uh, civil law actions in English law. So um, and they they arose out of some very patriarchal visions of of gender relations. The very uh, earliest seduction statutes basically um, allowed fathers to sue men who seduced and impregnated their daughters. And the action that under which they could sue these men was under this legal fiction that held that women, uh, that the sorry, daughters of men were their servants. And that if their servant, i.e. their daughter, got pregnant, they suffered a loss of services. And so they could sue the man for that loss of services. So that, as that sounds, that is a pretty feudal idea of, of gender relations and uh, it's not empowering for the woman in, in the least because the woman was a silent partner in that lawsuit. It was a man suing another man about a woman's chastity. So not, not a promising start, you would think, for um, a seduction law. However, uh, over the course of the um, 18th century and then especially in the 19th century, these laws um, evolved such that women could sue on their own behalf and... Um, Think about it in a different way. This was effectively a form of alimony because it was a way or child support. It was a way of, of saying that in a society where marriage was so important and men owed nothing to women who um, they got pregnant if they were outside of marriage, it was a way of guaranteeing some kind of minimal um, protection to women. And this was why uh, many 19th century feminists and indeed 18th century feminists like Mary Wollstonecraft were huge fans of these laws. Um, in the 19th century and in America, where obviously these laws had come over with the, with the pilgrims, um, they were totally transformed. In the first instance, they uh, liberalized the, the civil law action. And in the second instance, they actually created a criminal law to cover seduction. This was on a state-by-state -state basis, and there were lots of different um, variations between them. But the, the headline is that basically by the end of the 20th, 19th century, there were about 75% of US states had seduction laws that criminalized seduction, which was often defined by relationship to a, a promise of marriage, uh, but in many cases it wasn't, and more or less any sexual behavior that from the woman's perspective, perspective went awry could then be, become a legal question um, because the, the focus on protecting women and as a secondary aim, safeguarding the sanctity of marriage as a goal and trying to prevent what they called fornication. Um, and finally, uh, in the early 20th century in America, they introduced federal laws, the Mann Act, which um, were phrased 
as such, they were dealing with prostitution, but in practice, they were um, a federal seduction statute. And what's really interesting, a point that you raise about these laws, especially um, in the American context, is that they were also used to police or promote other agendas, um, such as racism. And you give the example of Jack Johnson. I wonder whether you could explain that a bit here. Sure. So, um, well, there are two parts of that. There's Jack Johnson and there's the uh, seduction laws and and how they collided with, I think, quite incredible consequences. Um, Just to focus on the seduction laws quickly, um, the seduction laws were often um, framed in a colorblind way. So there was no mention of race in it. Um, however, that was that was often a, a conscious strategy. And we're speaking about the early twentieth century here, is that right? Right, but also in the in the in the late nineteenth century as well, because you have to understand that nothing is happening in a vacuum. Um, in uh, the eighteen seventies and eighteen eighties, when Jack Johnson was a child and in Texas, um, this was the height of lynching. In the, uh, the post-Civil War, uh, that was when um, you had this huge epidemic of racial violence, which we now know as lynching. And often lynching was triggered by allegations of, of sexual impropriety by black men towards white women. So that is one, one factor. Another factor is that in this era, states were criminalizing interracial marriage, and they were even criminalizing interracial sex. So uh, if you are a... a black woman in this era who wants to try and bring a seduction statute, actually the law doesn't apply to you because under the state law in Alabama, for example, a black woman can't marry a white man. So a white man can't make a proposition of marriage to seduce a black woman. And in the second instance, interracial sex is illegal. So the fact that you've been seduced makes no difference to to the, the Alabama courts. In fact, you've committed a crime. So Black men live under the spectrum of lynching. Black women are basically denied um, uh, protection under the laws. And so that, so, that, so that kind of silence on race actually speaks to uh, very real racial aspects to the, to the state laws. Um, at a federal level, the Mann Act was basically a response uh, to many things, but also to mass migration to northern cities. And this is mass migration from Europe, often Jewish uh, men and women, also Catholics, even some some people from the Middle East, um, and also internal migration of uh, former slaves and their families northwards to cities like Chicago and New York. And Jack Johnson, who was born in um, the year after uh, Reconstruction ended in the South in 1878, uh, was very much of this era. He was a, a Southern black man who went north to pursue his career. His career was was boxing, so he became very famous and very rich. And that put a huge bullseye on his back. And the the law they used to go after him was uh, the Mann Act, which was a, effectively a federal seduction statute. Um, it's, it is worth noting as well that he was also the, the, the victim of several attempts at attempted lynchings. So people were going after him with every, every uh, weapon available. And eventually uh, he did end up in court charged with the Mann Act and he did end up losing that case. And uh, his response to that uh, rather uh, picaresquely was to run away to England. And he ended up spending the whole of the First World War in London. So to just circle background somewhat to um, earlier centuries. As you mentioned at the start, you trace us back to the Enlightenment and that's where you see all this sparking off. Um, And then you go on to look at the idea of um, rake culture. What 
were the characteristics of a rake and how was their behaviour viewed? There were kind of two iterations of this. Again, you have on one hand the villainous side and on the other hand the heroic kind of Mm. Hasanova type. Right. I mean, you know, rakes uh, at the simplest level were just uh, often aristocratic, normally rich uh, sort of libertines who didn't behave very well and went to big cities like London, drank, gambled and uh, womanized. So I'm hesitant to over-intellectualize this behavior because it is uh, eternal and has been going on ever since and I'm sure for many years before. But um, the context in which it was happening was was the Enlightenment, was this um, what uh, historians have called the the first sexual revolution, which was this growing post-Enlightenment acceptance that the religious authorities were not going to police sexuality, that the courts weren't really going to police sexuality, and that civil society, uh, although they tried through the societies for the reformations of manners, uh, which had originally began under Cromwell and then were periodically revived throughout the 18th century, including last and most famously by by William Wilberforce, who's more famous for um, leading the abolitionist movement. Um, And so all these people, these very noble people, often with um, uh, aristocratic backing, kept on trying to control sexual behavior in big cities like London, and they always failed. Because it became to be taken for granted that people had agency, and they knew their desires, and they knew their their preferences, and they should be allowed to pursue them. And that underwrote a lot of things about the Enlightenment. It underwrote our embrace of capitalism. It underwrote our embrace of religious toleration. Um, it underwrote uh, even, you know, people's desire to move to America and elsewhere and and do 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 things free of interference. If you looked at it without digging much deeper, you'd think Enlightenment means reason and logic and feels cold and calculated and sensible mm. almost. Whereas rake culture is hedonism and um, passion, yeah. which those two things don't really seem to mesh. But the way that you're explaining it suggests mm. that they're actually part of the same idea. Very much so. I mean, I mean, look, it's not as if everyone got around a table at some point in the 18th century and said, this is the Enlightenment. This is what we're going to do. OK, people, you get freedom of press and you also get sexual freedom. Clearly, that's not what happened. But it's the second and third order consequences of, of freedom in, in all these domains, which means that it becomes very hard to argue against sexual freedom, especially in a society which doesn't really have, doesn't have feminism. So there's no, there's no sense that you know, there are protected classes we need to worry about and, and look out for their rights. In fact, it's quite the reverse. I mean, you still have a lot of misogyny mixed in with a kind of increasingly reckless attitude towards sexuality. And you also speak um, as well as about uh, religious ideas and how they influenced uh, this story. You also speak about the idea of classical, the classical world and that inheritance. Right. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, the classical world and indeed the, the Christian world, because I'm, I'm dealing with a, a more secular age, do cast very long shadows. Christian world, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very complex, the Christian legacy in... Um, in the modern era, in particular with regards to sexuality. A lot of the people we're dealing with who were campaigning to control sexuality were heavily influenced by evangelical Christianity. I mentioned William Wilberforce. If you look at the end of the 19th century, you have a lot of people involved in the um, activism around this issue, like Francis Willard in America, Josephine Butler in the US, in the UK, uh, W.T. Stead in the, in the UK, who I talk about, who are all um, signed up evangelical Christians and uh, although they campaign often in um, 
in a, in a secular space, they bring in this, this language of uh, moral certainty and moral purity into the public sphere. Um, to pick up on your point there about W.T. Stead, mm. his story is so extraordinary. Can you tell us a bit about his journalism and the hot water it got him into? Right. I think this is something that people um, probably will never have, have heard of. But one of the reasons that America has age of consent laws is because of W.T. W. T. Stead, who uh, was an English journalist who never actually didn't actually go to America until the 1890s and then uh, uh, very tragically died on a Titanic trying to get to America um, on a later date. But he had an enormous influence on the course of British legislation and consequently of American legislation. And he was a journalist based in London. He was a socialist, he was a Christian, and he um, was this avatar of this kind of uh, Victorian muscular Christianity, intensely concerned with social issues, very critical of um, the elite uh, establishment, which he considered corrupt, um, both uh, morally and sexually. And he um, went on a campaign in 1884, 1885, to reveal a um, trade in British girls and women um, into the sexual uh, into sexual slavery uh, in the brothels of London, but also of um, France and Belgium. And he tried to um, create public interest in this and, and failed because Victorians were extremely class conscious. And the, the last thing that people in the House of Commons and the House of Lords wanted to do was empower um, working class women with new laws which they could use to basically level the playing field um, with uh, the, their male masters and in their minds, their male betters. And so what W.T. Stead did was he decided to basically go undercover in the seamy world of uh, London brothels to try and get a first person proof that you could buy a virgin in London and then take her to France to um, sell into sexual slavery. So he found someone who was willing to sell him uh, her daughter, or so he claimed, um, and deliver her to a f apartment in Regent Street where he could basically take possession of her and do whatever he wanted. Um, so this is what he did. And W.T. Stead was a teetotaler, like all good Christians, but because he was undercover, he decided to drink champagne to be a convincing um, rake. So he has his first ever drink of champagne, so he's a bit drunk, appears in this kind of theatrical outfit in this um, walk up on Regent Street, takes possession of this kind of terrified 13-year-old girl who'd been put under ether to kind of um, tranquilize her. And then he takes her uh, to France, um, where, you know, having proven this was doable, he delivers her into a rescue home run by the Salvation Army and then goes public with this story. And uh, he calls um, this kind of series of reports from the uh, London underworld the maiden tribute of modern Babylon, which, uh, as the name suggests, he's kind of drawing upon ancient myth to kind of describe this, what he considers a virgin sacrifice of um, British female chastity to the kind of insatiable desires of... Uh, men. Um, so, so he's very hard-hitting on the subject of, 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 of gender. There's also a big class aspect to this. He actually uses the term 1%. It's, um, he's, he's doesn't pull any punches. And the upshot of all of this is, is kind of farcical and chaotic, but also very serious. Because what he succeeds in doing in the summer of 1885 
is passing through House of Commons and the House of Lords and getting a royal signature, um, a bill called the Criminal Law Amendment Act, which uh, changed the age of consent um, upwards. It introduced new laws to cover sexual assault, to cover things that we would now consider date rape, so if you use kind of drugs or alcohol to um, knock people out. Um, and uh, there were other aspects to this as well. It covered, you know, regulation of prostitution, people being um, procured into, into prostitution. It even covered homosexuality. This was the, the law that resulted in um, Oscar Wilde going to jail. Uh, but the twist in the tale was that when he um, went public, people realized that he had obviously committed a crime because he had more or less uh, committed slavery himself and kidnap and, uh, and uh, so forth. So he ended up going to jail and he was a very happy prisoner because for him, it was the best publicity in the world. And for every year afterwards, on the day that he was sentenced, he would get dressed in his old prison uniform and have a photo taken of him and his admirers loved this. Um, so, and I mentioned America right at the beginning. This is kind of a forgotten aspect of kind of the special relationship that Britain and America enjoy, is that often uh, the Americans have taken cue from what's going on in England and uh, vice versa. And at this point in America, the age of consent was as low as eight years old. So that was the low, as low as it was, that was in Delaware. On average, it was between 11 and 13. Um, and one consequence of uh, WTSED's campaigning was that the WCTU in America, the Women's Christian Temperance Movement, um, which was an enormous, enormously influential uh, early feminist um, organization, said, this is disgraceful that the English have managed to pass this law, and yet we can't. And within 20 years, every US state had an age consent, which was 16 or 18. And that was a direct consequence of WTSED's utterly mad behavior in London uh, in the 1880s. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The idea that we would call some of this behavior seduction now strikes us as obscene, but actually in the 18th century, that's the word they used. And so that kind of lexical change has to be uh, taken into account as well. However, all of that progress and still we're wrestling with these issues and people really care about it. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. We focused, I think, primarily here on, on the more negative aspects of this, the imbalance of power, um, exploitation. But we have also, as you mentioned, there is also this other side of it that could, in theory, be empowering and um, uh, and there could be some kind of equality and empowerment given to women by seduction. Mm. Um, but... That said, you look at, uh, for example, the Romantics and their kind of experimentation with the idea of free love. Free love, I guess, probably is is an anachronistic term. No, it's not. Is actually. it not? They, is they, it? They use that phrase, yeah. Um, so Byron and the Shelleys, for example. Right. But you also suggest that the idea of free love was perhaps not as equal or empowering as we might think for everyone involved. Right. I mean, I mean. You know, we have to we have to to doff our caps to to people like Shelley and Byron and Mary Shelley and, and Mary Wollstonecraft and um, Claire Claremont because they were, you know, two hundred years ahead of their time in terms of how they were thinking and, and the kind of world they wanted to arrive at. But the reason they were ahead of their time was because um, a lot of other things weren't in place. It's very hard to think of of true sexual freedom happening in a world where there's no contraceptives, where there's no female participation in the economy, where there's no legal uh, infrastructure to deal with the competing claims of sexual freedom on the one hand and protection from abuse uh, in all fields uh, on the other. So uh, that that is that, is that really. It's like, uh, what, what does it mean to, to have sexual freedom if you're a woman and if you get pregnant you're a pariah. You can never marry again. You can't get any any, any work. Your family won't won't, won't help you. Your, the church will will punish you, and so forth. Uh, and and exactly that scenario was the um, the topic of Mary Wollstonecraft's final novel, which she never completed, called Maria, where she described exactly that that situation. It's when when people tried to practice free love and it went wrong, women suffered and men men got off scot free. Now. All that is true. I would also add, and that is a recurring feature in the book, there was also no penicillin then. So there's also the sexual disease was was rampant and it was a fact of life for all of these people. Um, Casanova had it repeatedly and it was the subject of uh, lengthy passages in his memoirs, which I won't go into right now. I will pick you up on Casanova there because we do probably need to talk about him in a, in a discussion about seduction. When you're looking at um, Casanova's memoirs, which you do in, in quite a lot of depth, how much of that is autobiog- autobiographical and how much of that is fiction? Uh, you know, there's a, for the longest time, everyone thought Casanova just made this all up. Uh, I mean, really, people thought it was, it was fantastical and that he was just a liar, more or less. And the book is very entertaining, so you can, uh, you, his memoir is very entertaining, so you can see why people wanted to believe it was uh, fiction rather than reality. But um, in the early 20th century, there was this explosion of interest in him by a group of people who called themselves Casanovists. So they were specialists in Casanova. And they basically went through the archives in, in Venice and elsewhere and found proof that almost everything he was talking about was true. And there's documentary evidence that supports what was what he was saying. Um, you know, of course, a lot of other things uh, which he talks about, some of the details are, are, are you know, out of, out of sight because they concern very obscure events and obscure places. 
But a lot of the people that he was he was moving with were were quite famous. Theresa Ema came to London and ran a, the first nightclub. She was a society figure. Um, some of the diplomats he was dealing with in um, Venice, you know, they have archives and they were talking about him. And then when he was in in France, he ran the French state national lottery for a while and became fantastically rich. And one of the funny things about Casanova is he met so many people and a lot of them left their remarks on him. And so you have this very funny thing where he'll talk at length about Voltaire and then Voltaire will have one line in his diary saying, you know, this strange Venetian man came over for tea or uh, Boswell who met him in an inn in Germany and just describes him as an idiot, basically. Um, another figure from the book that I did want to ask you about was Francis Charteris, mm. who was known as the Rape Master General by all accounts, a pretty despicable figure. Yeah. Um, so why does he fit into this story? Because by some perspectives, his behaviour could be defined as kidnap, rape, assault. Mm. Why have you included him in A History of Seduction? Right, yeah, I, I agree with all of that, obviously. Um, I, uh, I wanted to include him just as a, as a starting point to say that... Um, our sexual culture has always tended to trade in extremes, and the extremes of the of the seducer is this kind of suave, heroic figure, you know, be it James Bond or, or Bridget Bardot, is one extreme, and the other extreme are these people who are using um, sexual uh, the rhetoric of sexual liberation as basically a cover for um, exploitative, abusive, and, and illegal behaviour. And I think uh, that is something that in 2020 we all understand very well because we've lived through something which has basically covered those two extremes in the last four years, namely the, the Me Too movement. And I think that uh, Charteris was, is an interesting way of understanding what the moralists of that era are writing against. I wonder whether you could, before, because I realise I haven't really explained his story, whether you could just give us a little soundbite of what his story was that I can just put at the start of that sure. bit before we go into it, yeah. if that's all right. Uh, so Charteris was a, a Scottish aristocrat. He was born into um, immense privilege, and then he married into even more immense privilege, and then he became uh, even richer by being a card cheat, and he just uh, scammed the whole of the Scottish aristocracy. And uh, after a while, they got sick of him and sick of his uh, predatory sexual behavior, and he came to London and became the kind of most legendary um, uh, rake of his day. If you look at the first plate of William Hogarth's The Harlot's Progress, and you look in the background on the right-hand side, you will see uh, Charteris with his henchman John Gourlay lurking in the background. So Hogarth knew who he was, Alexander Pope talks about him, all of the great uh, Augustan uh, writers and artists knew who he was and referenced him in their writings. And Samuel Richardson was, was uh, riffing off um, Charteris when he wrote Pamela and Clarissa as well. So he embodied this kind of one extreme of male rapacity and became a byword, uh, you know, almost like re referencing the devil who, who he was often compared to, to understand, you know, what the, what the kind of moral and material consequences of rape culture was. There do seem to be some quite strong parallels between that story and the Me Too Harvey Weinstein story that's come out. And in the afterword, you do bring this story up to date. How do you see these centuries of history uh, playing out in the debates happening today? Right. I mean, I, sh I should say up front that I began the book in 2016. Um, so this was before Me Too had happened. 
And um, I was kind of overtaken by events. Uh, my, my intention was never to write a book about Me Too, but uh, it happened and it, it, it is relevant to, to address it. But all I can say is that it is interesting how some of the narratives that have been played out in Me Too reflect these kind of older debates about agency, about uh, the nature of sexual freedom, about the nature of sexual expression, about the place of women in society, about uh, how far we have come and how far there is, there is to go. And um, it is interesting because if we were in the 19th century, you know, clearly we would know what we would have to win. But I think uh, in the 21st century, when we're looking at how much has changed in the last 300 years in respect to economic participation, legal protection, even just how society um, thinks about these things and the language we use to describe them, um, as, as you mentioned earlier, the idea that we would call some of this behavior seduction now strikes us as obscene. But actually in the 18th century, that's the word they used. And so that kind of lexical change has to be uh, taken into account as well. However, all of that progress and still we're, we're, we're wrestling with these issues and people really care about it. And that's kind of what I was, that's kind of my, my intuition behind the whole book. That was Clement Knox. His book, Strange Antics, A History of Seduction, is out now, published by William Collins. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next on Wednesday, when Afwa Hirsch will be discussing her new BBC series, The African Renaissance. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.